Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Heart Pills podcast where we're talking all things resilience and revolution. I'm Andre and Trish is not with us this week. She is, you know Trish, she's doing her famous person thing, singing somewhere. I think she's in New York this week. So she'll be back next week. But today we are joined by a very special guest. You probably read their book. Dean Spade is with us. Dean is an associate professor at Seattle University School of Law and also the author of Mutual Aid, which I feel like is a modern day classic in the realm of social justice. It's everywhere. I, I, I see so many people referring to it, quoting it. And so we're, we're honored to have you here, Dean. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks for reading the book. I'm really excited to talk to you. And thanks for doing this podcast. Yeah, um, we've been doing this for five years now. And I'm still always I'm still always like really excited when someone says they're willing to talk with us because, you know, we're not we're not NPR or anything like that. But we have a we have a we have a we have a good bunch of uh, we have a great audience that's really interested in changing the world. And I think that your book is adding something very valuable to this conversation about mutual aid. So I think most people's exposure, or at least I should talk for my speak for myself, my exposure to mutual aid is largely through um, Twitter and Instagram through social media. Um, I, it's a new term to me. And so I, that's why I was glad to have your book. And so I wondered if you could talk a bit about just the definition, what is mutual aid? And we know it's not a new thing. So where did it come from? <laughs> Yeah. Mutual aid is a term that is used by a lot of people in a lot of ways. So I'll say what I mean by it. Um, what to me, mutual aid is the is a term for the part of our social movement work where we directly address people's immediate needs. But I only consider it mutual aid if it also is coming from a shared understanding that it's the systems that are the problem, not the people who are in crisis. So it's not like charity, which is like, um, you know, what's wrong with you? Why are you homeless? You need to get sober. You need to take these meds. You you know, this kind of, Mm -hmm. it's instead like, oh, there's unhoused people. That's because of the capitalist housing market. That's because of racial capitalism and how it's, you know, whatever, colonialism, et cetera. So it's that piece, the piece about that shared understanding of the root causes. And the other piece is that mutual aid always includes an invitation to collective action. So if we know the problem Mm -hmm. isn't people who are in crisis, it's actually the system, then we're saying, hey, like, yeah, do you want some water? Or you want a tent or you want whatever we're giving out childcare. And if you want to um, join us to, you know, fight, fight this for everybody, you can. Do you want to come to the rally we're doing? Do you want to be part of this project giving out tents? Like whatever. So that's the kind of key pieces is that, um, that, that we're, we're directly meeting needs, but we're doing it not from an individual's perspective, but from a systemic standpoint. And the history is that mutual aid is part of every social movement historically. Like what social yes. movements do is identify problems um, and fight back. And you, when you're doing that, you're always also directly supporting people in crisis that are, you know, the, the way that you're pissed about the problem. So, um, so, you know, some, you know, major famous examples, I think that the Underground Railroad is an example of mutual mm-hmm. aid, like people were fighting and attacking and trying to destroy the system of chattel slavery, but also directly trying to get people out of it. And all the mutual aid societies that existed as part of the Underground Railroad, like beyond getting people north, there was like these huge black mutual aid societies that received people into northern cities and that were mostly made up of working class black women um, who helped people who came and showed up and had nothing settle. Or there was at the same period of time, like huge 
mutual aid societies of people supporting immigrants arriving on boats who like show up and don't speak the language and need help finding a place to stay and like surviving. You know, those are histories. I think in the U.S., really famous histories of mutual aid include things like the Black Panther Party's survival programs. Like those Mm -hmm. were so visible, you know, the Black Panther Party serving free breakfast, doing health programs, having an ambulance service, sort of exposing the outrage of the abandonment um, and and attack on black people. They had this program that includes like being armed against the police. They had so many elements, but one element is like help our people survive. And for a lot of people, that was their entry point. They showed up, their family got breakfast and they were like, wow, I'm in community with people talking about how we can all fight back Mm -hmm. together. Like that's a very mobilizing piece. Also, I think, you know, many people are aware of things like COVID-19 mutual aid projects, of which mm-hmm. there were so many people are maybe aware of like no more deaths. You know, this project at the U.S.-Mexico border where people go and try to help folks who are going to die um, crossing wow. the border in these really dangerous desert conditions. And no more deaths camps have been like raided by the U.S. government under Trump. So we also see this ongoing dynamic of mutual aid being considered quite dangerous by law enforcement, you know, like mm-hmm. J. Edgar Hoover famously talked about how the Black Panther Party's mutual aid program was like one of the biggest threats to like American stability, you know, like the mutual aid that social yeah. movements do is super important and it's often a target of government. I wanted to, that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about because what you just said, right, J. Edgar Hoover felt like the breakfast program that the Black Panther Party was doing I was such a threat. I feel like law enforcement was more aggressive in shutting down the breakfast program than anything else the Black Panthers were doing. There was so much disdain for it. Why is it such a threat to the the systems that we live under for us to organize ourselves in this way? Yeah, I mean, I love that you asked that question because a big focus of my work overall, you know, I'm a law professor and lawyer, a big focus of my work is like, guess what? Law and policy work is actually not that transformative. And Mm. you can tell because they don't kill us for doing it. You know, like what is really (laughs) terrifying and transformative is when social movements mobilize a lot of people to help each other survive and, and win major gains by like stopping existing systems. I always think about the Montgomery bus boycott actually as an example of mutual aid, right? They had to move Mm -hmm. tens of thousands of people to work in school and everywhere without the buses. So it was like this giant transportation mutual aid project that allowed their strategy to operate. Like when you think Mm -hmm. about this, like mutual aid is both the place a lot of people enter into movements. It's legitimizing for movements because people are like, hey, the government doesn't give my community what it needs. Actually, they attack us. And these people are helping us out. Hmm, What are they up to? So it's a very big entry point for Mm -hmm. people to get radicalized because they're like, yeah, actually, I do have that problem. Right. And and so you see again and again that it is the government knows it's dangerous. We as a, as communities should know it's dangerous. And part of the reason I care about this point, because I think we've been demobilized by a message. You know, nonprofits yes. will handle these problems. You should donate to them. You should post on social media, but you shouldn't be engaged in anything in your community. And mm-hmm. the thing you the, that because that's how they want us. Right. So when we mm-hmm. do mutual aid, we're actually really turning that upside down and, and saying, like, let's start projects that everybody can get involved in and be engaged in that -hmm. radicalizes a lot of people to show up for all kinds of fronts, both helping our folks survive. And then we're also going to all show up for the transit riders union, or we're going to all show up and, you know, help people who are doing a tree sit or whatever. And I want to just draw your attention. I'm sure you're following this, but you know, in, Mm -hmm. um, in August, 61 defendants who are all part of the, um, 
work to stop Cop City in Atlanta to stop the creation of this new big police training facility um, that's going to be built on top of a forest. 61 people were indicted under federal racketeering and conspiracy charges. And when you read the indictment, which is, I mean, this is like a really big moment of of, um, Mm -hmm. repression of, of social movements. When you read the indictment, the thing they're all being indicted for is stuff like, yeah, this person bought um, a generator to help, you know, do the mm. concert. Or this person bought tents so people could have rain protection when we were doing this protest in the um, in the forest. Like the the pieces around mutual aid are so thoroughly throughout it. There's also yes. other things. So this person's accused of, you know, uh, camping in the forest to try to stop the destruction of the forest. This person's accused mm-hmm. of throwing a Molotov cocktail. All the different tactics we use are in there as a community. But mm-hmm. when you see the government make these terrifying federal conspiracy and domestic terrorism charges against um and and uh, state charges against 61 defendants and so much of it is mutual aid it's again one of those moments like that j edgar hoover moment that you're talking about where we can see that if mutual aid if we if us doing mutual aid is that threatening to them we should know how important it is for us right yeah that that is strange to me that i mean it's strange and it's not strange like we understand the system that we're living under we know that it's pattern behavior right but I'm curious about that relationship between mutual aid and the state. And I know that you recently wrote a piece about this because we do see this like where one example for myself is I think about student loan debt, you know, and how politicians dangle the possibility like, oh, we'll relieve the student loan debt, you know, so they can get votes. And then they know that they're not going to do anything about the debt. Right. So sometimes I wonder, like, I feel like we have the money. <laughs> you know, like I feel like I feel like between the millions of us, we have the money. Right. But there is this dependency that there's a common sense of dependency on the state where we think that we have to keep on trying to force these official political channels to work, even though we've seen over and over again that these official political uh, channels are not working for us. So I wonder if you might speak more kind of about just the relationship between how we think of what the state is supposed to do for us, what it's going to do for us, why more people don't feel like a direct action approach like this, a mutual aid approach might, what what keeps us from doing it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think if the state is like a spell that we're under, actually, like it's a it's this big lie, right? Like, I mean, just we just think of the United right. States as a giant spell we're under that obscures reality. That's like, wow. you know, you can imagine like I'm like in a cartoon and I've got like stars in my eyes and I'm missing what's real. Like I've been told <laughs> that this land is a place called the United States. There's no reason that it is. That's a made up idea. And I've been told right. it has a set of laws that govern people when reality. I know they're wildly differently enforced on different people and that there's no actual mm-hmm lawless lawful system there's actually just the lawlessness of the violence of law enforcement um, and i'm told that this thing will solve my problems and that i cannot solve my own problems and that our communities mm. cannot solve them that the only thing that can fix it on the right scale is the scale of the state even though if i actually look at what the government has done over the course of my whole lifetime or the course of its entire lifetime it is a project of colonialism it's a project of extraction yeah. right like what mm-hmm. the government does is it helps capital keep us all in our places and take our labor from us and take the land and take the resources right and so it's hard though because people really believe that it's a deep disempowerment it's like we couldn't possibly i I think about this a lot with like um the the fires in 2018 in um Mm -hmm. in california you know and it was like pg and e actually caused those fires right the big public utility but as soon as the (laughs) fires happened all these people were killed and displaced as soon as the fires happened 
the government made a law like uh, absolving PG&E of any possible responsibility and then oh proceeded to like, you know, criminalize people who were living in a Walmart parking lot um, because wow. they've been displaced by the fires. Right. So they're criminalizing mutual aid. Right. So you see this again and right. again. It's like the, the government protects capital, protects systems that are actually endangering us. And one of the arguments some people have made is like, what we really need is not to have these single big grids. What we need to actually have local grids. People need to have control in their communities of whether or not they're willing to you know, have their electricity come from coal or fracking or whatever, you know, this is like, mm -hmm. but it's, of course we have no control. We're like, you know, I don't know where the electricity comes from that's going into this house. And I don't know how the water system works and I don't get any say in whether those things right. are hurting the earth. Right. And so the state is like this, in the one hand, it's like, you know, Foucault says it's a mythicized abstraction. It's like a, it's like a mythology. It's like a, it's like a fantasy mm -hmm. of mommy, daddy, will help us, but it's also mm -hmm. a feeling of disempowerment. And I think that what social movements do a lot of the time is we help people find our own power and our rage and be like, what can we do in our communities already? And what are we already doing, right? A lot of our communities right. have already been like scraping by under the attack of the state, still somehow managing to survive by helping each other out. Like mutual aid is like normal in targeted communities. We're, we're supporting mm -hmm. our, our uh, siblings in prison. We're doing childcare on the fly. You know, we already know mm -hmm. this. So I think that, I think part of what's happening for me, I spent a lot of my life doing a combination of tactics, some of which are state oriented, like trying to stop mm -hmm. new prisons and jails from being built, including an appeal yes. to state authorities to stop that through also organizing or trying to get funding out of the police system or whatever. I'm increasingly feeling like even those types of work that I've done too much oriented toward the idea that we can convince the state, whether that's the Seattle city government or the state of Washington or the United States, that we could convince them to do the right thing. And it is not mm. in their nature. It is not in the nature right. of these entities to do anything but racial capitalism and right. colonialism. So right. I think more and more I am looking towards um, anarchist liter literatures of different kinds, including black anarchist and indigenous anarchist literatures in particular that I find um, really wise to see like, what does it mean to really imagine solving our problems when we fully recognize that the state yeah. is not going to save anybody, but is actually the source of the harms that we're living under. And when we face how scary it is to be like, oh, yikes, they're not coming to save us. And mm. we have to both sort of try to sabotage and destroy what they're doing because it's because so, it's hurting our people. And we mm. have to have ways of living that um, that can be like, you know, survivable, especially in the kinds of crises we're in. So I think that's really like that, I think a lot of people don't have that faith. They don't have faith in each other. Like, what, what if we yes. didn't have cops? What if we didn't have people governing mm -hmm. us? Could we collaborate and be better off? I think we could. Yeah. You know, what if we didn't have militaries? And then the other question is like, yeah, wow, yikes. They have all the money and the guns. We are in a very, very, very difficult place from which to struggle. And I'd rather yeah. at least be aware and sober to that, even if it's really scary news. I, I feel like I'm getting more radicalized the more that we talk. <laughs> about this and i have a i have i have a few more questions but the one that sticks out to me now is i just wonder if you would agree with this because i i feel like we're circling you know this question of power right like is that all that this is about on because on the one hand you would think that you would think that politicians people who have power over their constituents or whatever would at the very least want those people to be taken care of. That, I think most of us would assume that that's their job, right? Is to make sure that their constituents are taken care of. Um, but even in 2020, one uh, Colorado 
politician literally said, like, he got an attitude with people for expecting. <laughs> this is when I was like, guys, they're saying the quiet part out loud because he literally got on Twitter and went on this rant about how, like, basically these people expect me to take care of them and that's not my job. Right. So then it begs the question, like, what are you here for? If you're not going to do it and we start doing it for ourselves so that we're taken care of, why are you sending in the police to stop us? Right. Is it just to keep us under control? Is it just to have workers for the system? What what do you think is the answer to that question? Yes. I mean, I think that if you look at what the U.S. government does, it is primarily a project of U.S. military imperialism all over the world. And so you could have like even like these Democrats and these Republicans and they're supposed to be different and they disagree on mm-hmm. a few things like abortion and trans people. But they mostly <laughs> fully agree on everything. Look at the yes. current war on Gaza. They have been funding yeah. Israel in this way. Right. So for a long time. So to me, I'm like, yeah, the point of the government is to. Um, sustain the uh, colonial imperial projects, the racial projects that the United States is, that it fundamentally is, and to keep um, people suppressed enough and in their in their places. And there's lots of ways they do that by dividing us, lots of creative ways, and by you know selectively rewarding certain people. And it's really intense because you see a lot of our people who want to make a difference join the government and find out yeah. there's nothing they can do from in there. Or you're like, wait, who are you? You're not who we elected, you know? Like right. so there's, there's not, there's not, how many times we have to fall for that? There's not something wrong with each of those yes. people. There's something right. bigger going on. Mm-hmm. That is, and I and I think also there's a really dangerous um sort of dynamic amongst even people who are our friends about being like you know seeing people like AOC or Bernie or whatever as like these celebrities who are going to yeah. save us in government when they're just like never going to get anything done they're totally outnumbered and the more we spend right. our time watching that kind of like sideshow of them the less time we're spending like in our community figuring out like are we going to have water on this block when the next earthquake comes which is I think where we mm-hmm. need to be at right now. You know, when the next storm mm-hmm. comes, when the next fire comes, because it's all, as you know, constantly coming. So I think it's a question of power. And what it really is about is missing how much power we have. We are being yes. governed by a tiny, tiny elite. They can be displaced. It's hard. Mm-hmm. They've got a very complex, nuanced, convincing apparatus keeping us yeah. in place. But ultimately, we are more of them, more than them by, yeah. you know, almost everybody, you know? So yeah. I think that's the real deep question is like how to demystify ourselves and each other about our roles in this, how to stop waiting for them to save us. You know, it's not going to happen. Okay. I want to switch gears a little bit because I hear in what you're saying almost sounds like faith, you know, in, in us, you know, and what we're capable of doing. And so I'm just curious about what you see, what is possible through mutual aid? You know, is the sky the limit? Can we can we accomplish anything we put our minds to? Um, what do you, what do you believe is possible? On the one hand, throughout most of human history, there were not states. There was not elites like controlling people the ways they are now. So that's helpful to me because it's like that means people do know how to create cultures in which the main goal is to keep everybody alive. That has been what mo- people mostly have done since humans have existed. Um, right now, it's not the way it is. We like to like bomb and destroy everybody and everyone's environment. But that is, mm-hmm. so that's helpful to me. That That's a source of hope. To be honest, though, I don't have, like, I would say, like, a certain kind of hope about yes. what we're living through. I think I want to be sober enough to be like, wow, conditions are really, really bleak. A lot of things have been set in motion regarding ecological crisis that can't be undone. Yeah. And um, and the and the the new the the things that we need to stop happening are actually still happening. 
So yes. it's not as much that mutual aid is going to deliver us a utopia. It's that mm-hmm. whatever shreds of survival we might have will come through it. And so I want yeah. to invest as much as my, of my energy mm-hmm. as possible for the rest of my life, supporting wow. people to build the skills we need to share stuff with each other, to establish as many of the systems we need to survive as possible as the existing ones collapse, which you know kind of need to collapse because they're exploitative yeah. and extractive and unsustainable anyway, and to build as much capacity to destroy the systems that are hurting people as possible. Like I want us to break people out of prison and I want us to block pipelines yes. and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how well or poorly we will fare at that because things are very, very hard. But why would we not try like of course we have to like reduce human suffering as much as possible for the rest of our lives and i think this is the way to do it more than like trying to get somebody elected to congress just to be totally frank or more than trying to like convince biden of something so that's where i'm at it's just like i think mutual aid is the most realistic hope for people Mm. to have greater wellness and it's not yeah. easy work to do, but it's deeply rewarding because it's deeply relational. And most of us are quite isolated in the society. So it makes us safer because we build relationships with people who care about what we care about and have our backs when we're in the hospital or when we're broke or whatever. And that's so I think it's I think it's good for people individually. It's good for our well-being. Mm-hmm. And it, then it's also good for like overall survival of us all in the, in the worsening vulnerabilities. Yeah. You know, one of the obstacles that I've run into a lot. I feel like mutual aid is too strong of a term to call the kinds of collaborative uh, (laughs) economics and collaborative work that I find myself in. But one of the obstacles that I that I run into in trying to get it started in my own life is just trust. You know, like most of the people that I know, like we don't have a group of people that that feels like we know each other well enough to say something like, Hey, why don't we buy a house together, you know, and we'll take care of each other. You know what I mean? Like, or something like that. How, how do people work through that to build the kind of trust that it takes to build those networks to do mutual aid together? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people do it with strangers and that's, what's so amazing. You know, like I mean, yeah. what I, what I think, what I really wish I could, everyone was doing right now was like just on your block or in the couple of blocks around you or, or whatever your rural equivalent is, you know, the, the, the area of the County you're in, like mm-hmm. just being like, okay, we're going to put on a workshop about how to make a go bag. Cause we think people should have a go bag. Cause either we live in fire country right. or we live in earthquake country, you know, and, 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 there, and we're going to, there's going to be some free giveaway part of it. It's going to be like free emergency mm-hmm. blankets or whatever. And Mm-hmm. Everybody brings stuff. If you have extra flashlights, bring them. Or if you have, you know, whatever. And just like yeah. building relationships by just collaborating on some, like mm-hmm. those kinds of one-offs, starting to gather or being like, wow, a lot of people in our community are being evicted. We're going to have a meeting about it and see who shows up. Or wow, a lot of people on our block are worried about the elders on the block. We're going to show. And then you, and then it's strangers. And yeah, you don't trust each other perfectly. And you're like, oh, wow, you're super transphobic. And I am here in this meeting with you. So now we got to build some skills together and I got to figure out how I can keep you and you can keep me, even though there's something to overcome or, wow, there's Mm anti-black stuff happening in this meeting or, oh, wow, like Mm -hmm. we are really leaving out people with disabilities with the way we're meeting. And so you're working it out. And all of that is trust building. Like all of that, like kind of conflict is actually like that generates the kind of love and support we need, which is I'm willing to learn from you, willing to be influenced by you. I can love you even if I don't like you. I can get support when I'm frustrated by what's happening between like, that's, that's it. That's what we've got, you know? And so it's, I think a lot of it is like not expecting full trust all the time, but instead being like, 
what would be things that would enhance trust? And mostly it's like collaborating, hanging out, sticking it around, saying the hard thing, listening to the yep. hard thing. No, that makes a ton of sense, especially like, hey, guys, let's let's do a project together. <laughs> you know, like that that could that I could see how that could build connections with people right away. If you're just like, hey, everyone, why, you know, like you said, I mean, we live in earthquake country, you know, and most people I know are not prepared for an earthquake. You know, that would be super cool to get people together on that. Well, we're running low on time. So I want to make sure that um, I ask you our favorite question here, which is what keeps you showing up to do this work? Um, I mean, honestly, it's just like I'm obsessed with how social change happens and how people survive crisis. And I've studied yeah. that my whole life just because I I like what's a more interesting question, <laughs> you know? And yes. so I think yes. that like I have just a boundless curiosity, of, like what are the people trying? What did they try in the past? Were they trying in Puerto Rico? What are they trying in Brazil, you know, just whatever, right? Like with that, that stuff and meeting people and being like, how, how are they doing it in Atlanta? You know, that, that curiosity and my own connections and relationships with people who I work with and who I meet, like one, mm-hmm. like just, I don't know. I'm sure oh, I think a lot of people feel this very naturally, just like when I hear about people suffering or when I see it, I feel like I want to do something. And I, and I think also yeah. when I'm experiencing my own, when I run into my own, you know, problems, I like, I don't want to be alone in it. Like I want right. to talk to people about it and get help and find out who else is going through it and how did they solve it? And I want to commiserate with each other. So I think that's mm-hmm. what keeps me going. It's not, um, I think when I was younger, I believed, Oh, we're going to win. There's so many more of us than them. And, and now it's more like, I'm going to stick around to find out, <laughs> but like, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. And I, right. I know what side I want to die fighting on, you know, but yes. I don't know what that's going to look like. You know? Yeah. Well, thank you so much again for your time. Thanks for joining us. This has been such a great conversation. I feel like we could talk all day. <laughs> um, and, um, and you all listening, of course, we are always so thankful for you all, our audience. Thank you so much for joining us and listening to the Hope and Hard Pills podcast again. You will hear from Trish and I again next week. And always remember, no matter what's going on, um, a new world is possible. It doesn't have to be this way because we are tomorrow makers. See you next time. Thanks for choosing to listen today. You can catch up with our hosts online. Trish's is at Trish's Music, that's spelled T-R-I-S-H-E-S, Music, on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Andre is at TheAndreHenry on Instagram and TikTok, and at AndreHenry on Twitter. Catch the songs you heard today and more of their music on Spotify. If you'd like to support what we're doing here and see the video of Andre and Trish's conversation, you can join the Patreon at www.patreon.com slash AndreHenry. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.